Hey everybody, welcome to the Science Facts and Fallacies podcast brought to you by the Genetic Literacy Project. I'm your host, Cameron English. And I'm your co-host, Kevin Fulta, a professor who cares about science communication. This is the weekly show where we discuss the biggest stories from the Genetic Literacy Project to keep you informed about groundbreaking developments from the worlds of science and medicine, and of course, to help you separate facts from fallacies as you read the headlines. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the show, Science Facts and Fallacies, episode 198. I am daytime TV star Cameron English. He is science communication extraordinaire, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Kevin, what's going on? Oh, just grading my brains out trying to finish a semester and still trying to remain relevant in research where I have zero time to do it. But (laughs) students had a good semester and it was a lot of fun in terms of I learned a lot about how to teach in the modern age. We could have that discussion sometime. But uh, it was a nice group of students and it makes me really happy to see some really good ones who are heading out. You know, some other ones are a little challenging, but in general, I think they're much better than they used to be. So optimistic. That's awesome, man. Always, uh, always looking on the bright side of life, Kevin. I really dig that about you. Even when things are not great, Kevin Fulta says, you know what? I'm going to get through it. It's, it's encouraging to hear that, man. Uh, I think a lot of people give people, give, uh, folks coming up these days a hard time and say, you know, college students aren't worth a damn. I think they're way better than they ever have been. And I've been working with college students for 30 years since just after I was one. Mm-hmm. And I've just seen such a shift in attitude. Um, some of them are awful, but for the most part, I think the general co- cohort is really positive. So it makes me, uh, feel that, in my elderly years, I will be well-managed by, by reasonable people. <laughs> <laughs> we shall see. We shall see indeed. Okay. So we got three stories. Really good stuff as always. So first up, insect food, public skepticism remains a major hurdle. But here is the sustainability case for eating bugs. Next up, poor cholesterol, a gene-edited solution could lower, quote, bad LDL and reduce heart disease risk. And finally, universal mRNA-based vaccines targeting 20 types of flu is a real possibility. I sure hope so. That'd be awesome, Kevin. But first up, all right, let's hear the case for eating bugs. Yeah, it's actually a pretty good idea, turns out. (laughs) It's the original paleo diet, right? (laughs) Um, And and. And this is just just a normal part of our evolution. Uh, People used to throw lobsters, you know, to the to prisoners, and and they were used as fertilizer. You would just mix them in the earth because they were junk. You know, use them as bait. And it took a little time for that to finally come around. Now it's a you know multi billion dollar industry. So our changes do our 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 decisions around food do change tomatoes too uh people used to think they were poison even in here in the colonies you just didn't eat tomatoes they were nightshades so the idea of eating bugs may seem a little forbidden but uh at least in western culture but uh, it's something that is pretty common elsewhere and when i was in china you would eat bugs occasionally they had um they'd bring like the big like cornucopia horn of plenty to the table and it was full of different pupae that were all deep fried and you could go to the donghua men market in beijing and you could get a spider on a stick or uh you know a whole bunch of different stuff you could get there so it just reflects the fact that there are thousands of edible species of insects they're low carb 
high in fats and proteins, and they're probably a complete protein uh, for most insects, meaning that you have all of the amino acid complement that you don't get necessarily from plants alone or from animals alone. So it's a really good opportunity, I should say that, from plants alone. So it's a good alternative feed stuff if you can incorporate insects into the diet. But there's lots of other advantages as well. But uh, I don't know, you ever eat insects? On no, I'm, no, I'm not going to either. We'll get into that, but, but sorry, go ahead. Well, no, I'm just asking you if, you, if, if this is something you've had. I have not. I have not. And I don't think, I don't think I'm going to. And, uh, there's definitely some ick factor there for sure, but I think there's some legitimate, well, they're all legitimate, but I think there's some more, I don't know if you will, scientific reasons for, for not doing that. Yeah. Well, the the big place where insects win is in feed conversion. So this idea of feed conversion is how well does a given animal take the food they consume and translate that into body mass and growth. So, uh, if you look at, um, chickens, for instance, much better at feed conversion now than they were in the 1950s, strictly from breeding. But poultry are much more efficient in feed conversion than beef or pigs. Insects are even higher than chicken. So you uh, take a little bit of feed stuff and that converts into mass. And so in terms of the cost to raise calories, it's pretty good. The other big difference is, is that you're consuming the whole thing pretty much. Um, That's not true with pigs or cows or or turkeys. We're making Christmas turkeys this week. So, you know, we'll have gut piles and legs (laughs) and things that go in the garbage and go out to get fed to the dog sometimes. Um, They like livers and stuff. But those gut piles uh, are, are really a waste of feed conversion. And if you break it down, the cost of land to raise farm animals, food, water, Um, other resources, vet bills, uh, medication, insect farming starts to look pretty good. And so there seems to be a a consensus that if you look at um, uh, what the experts say, is that insects appear to be what will be a leading protein source, at least in an international market, at least for cattle. So animals may be eating a lot of insects really soon. So that's pretty cool. Well, that's fine. I mean, if you want to feed mealworms to the turkeys or the chickens or what have you, that, that's that's great. But I, the this at least what I suspect and what I've read thus far is that the case is being made that you need to eat bugs instead of steak or instead of hamburger because you know the planet. And so what what I'm what I'm concerned about is that the sort of calculations that go into this argument. Um, are, I don't know, I don't want to say wrong necessarily, but they're definitely speculative. Like there's a lot of moving parts here and I, I find that a little bit troubling, right? There, there, there isn't a concrete case here. I don't think, am I wrong about that? Well, it's, I don't know that this is always, this article did start to go that direction that they said, well, it's not as good as plants, a plant-based diet, but it is better than beef. You start to get that feeling and you can smell that agenda everywhere these days, but it does raise the important point that you could use insect protein and it makes a lot of sense. And for some folks that maybe don't have the ability to feed cattle, um, maybe it doesn't such a bad idea. And you can certainly take insects and crickets, for instance, 
and mill them into flours, high protein flour. Uh, it's gluten free. <laughs> it's um, and sixty five percent protein compared to beef, which is like twenty five. So it's it's a real no brainer in a lot of ways. And so I always look at these kinds of opportunities as maybe we do not need to have a little bit of a shift. And it's not an instead of, it's in an addition to. And I know the article uh, that was presented here had very much a uh, kind of anti-meat slant to it. But um, I think it's just so that maybe another way to interpret this is that insects may have a place. Uh, again, I'm fine with that. It's the same thing when we talk about impossible burgers and, uh, you know, uh, lab grown meat or whatever you want to call it. There's a place for anything. If, if you can develop something and there's a market for it, God bless you, knock yourself out selling your product. Um, but that's, that's not what I see here in many cases, right? I mean, this article we're reading is from the conversation, which is, um, I believe is a publicly supported news outlet. And then you have, you have, major media driving this you have the world economic forum driving this so there's a lot of there's a lot of money and a lot of influence behind this movement and that's that's what bothers me is there's an ideological component to this um that i i just don't want any part of and and the science tends to get lost so this is a study this was published in the proceedings of the national academies of science back in 2017 it's a very well-known paper in these circles but they they tried to model what it would look like to entirely pull meat out of or animal products out of the uh, the American diet, and they found that it only reduced greenhouse gas emissions by two point six percentage units. So it's this major revamping of the food system, and that's the that's the very tiny benefit you get out of it. You know, and again, in this model, they have to say, okay, well, there's this many people in the U.S. They eat this much meat, and there's this much food waste. And, you know, you need these many inputs to produce this unit of, of meat or this unit of some kind of a plant-based food. So, again, as I said, there's moving parts. I'm just not sold on the benefit of this and the need to do it. You know what I mean? So, I, I think I don't want to talk past you because it, what you're saying makes sense to me, which is this is just one thing among many, just like with all the plant breeding stuff we talk about. One tool among many we can use, and that's fine. Um, but that's not what I'm seeing, right? When Nicole Kidman gets on TV and she's like, oh, I eat mealworms. They're great. It's like, no, you don't, Nicole Kidman. You don't eat mealworms when the cameras aren't on. This, you know, this is this is a political movement. And uh, it, it I get suspicious when things happen that way. That's all. Well, it's got meal right in the name. <laughs> you know, I never thought about that before. We have some dessert flies. Um, there's a... Uh, I, and I totally get where you're coming from. You kind of look at this with the, you know, what is the intent of this article and who is the audience they're targeting? And by putting in the conversation, you're, this is a typically a, uh, these are of academic origin, these articles in the conversation. So you're targeting that audience and maybe trying to kind of grease the skids a little bit and starting to turn that uh, aircraft carrier of, of meat consumption around. And I, you know, I, I don't always, you know, I, I don't get too skeptical about that because it, it is true. It is kind of the way we're going in a lot of ways. Um, someday, every city in America will be overrun with cows because <laughs> you're not eating them anymore, and they're going to have to do something. Um, it's uh, it's going to be. Uh, it's just an idea that that we could use this as another protein source, and I look at it through the lens of 
if you look at world food security, one of the big problems is a lack of protein. Plenty of calories. You know, you can get rice and potatoes and matoki bananas in Africa and corn and soy and all that stuff. The protein levels are what's lacking. And to be able to develop foodstuffs from insects um, may have significant roles, especially in the developing world. So it may be a transitional, you know, another way to look at it is this may be a gateway food. The gateway to beef is coming through a mealworm. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, we'll, we'll see what happens. And uh, you, you try it first, Kevin. That, that's my only rule. You and anyone else who wants this to work and sees it as a viable option. Tell me how it goes. Tell me how the, the McBug nuggets are. And then uh, if they're good, if they work, then, then maybe, you know, I just, Right now, I don't see the need, but I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. Anyways, all right, let's 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 move on. Let's talk about uh, gene editing to fight bad cholesterol. Yeah, so bad cholesterol is really an issue, and this is an article by Markham Hyde in Time. And there are modifiable risk factors that allow you to manage cholesterol levels because cholesterol levels have a causal impact on heart health. Uh, we know that uh, there, you have HDL and LDL, these high density and low density lipoproteins, a very low de- <clears throat> excuse me, very low density lipoproteins, that they are causally associated with cardiovascular plaques, all kinds of other uh, cardiac issues. There are modifiable risk factors, so you can do certain things to affect that. And if you can reduce your cholesterol by ten percent, it's been shown the lower risk of heart related issues by thirty percent. So there's a lot of push that when the numbers are creeping up, a physician will prescribe statins, which change the levels of cholesterol that are produced. And there's ways you can modify this with uh, either total cholesterol or HDL-LDL ratio with diet, maybe exercise. But one way to do it for sure is genetics. And it's been shown very clearly that there are some folks like me that have high LDL levels. And mine aren't crazy off the charts, but they are higher. And one, uh, some folks in France really helped understand this. And there were there was a the people in France, a collective, several families that just had LDL levels or, or cholesterol levels that were off the charts, and it wasn't due to diet. And you would see this uh, phenomenon they called a familial hypercholesteremia, cholesterolemia, familial hypercholesterolemia. And the because you had people who were exhibiting this dystrophy and these far out numbers, that now you had a way to start to compare normal folks versus these folks and what was different between them. And they were able to define a series of genetic loci which were related to high cholesterol. One critical one was a gene that was eventually called PCSK9. And this is a, um, a protein that binds receptors that would normally help to remove LDL. So it, it is um, uh, a gene which is playing a role in the modulation of cholesterol levels. And what's pretty cool about this gene is that you can have mutations that make it better at removing it, but you can find mutations that make it less better at removing it. And so what you're getting are uh, a very nice example of genetic mutations that directly are affecting cholesterol levels. So the idea here is, can you use gene editing to model the mutations that lower the levels? 
And, and that is really the, the uh, molecular biology that underlies this entire approach. Yeah, this is really interesting. So this is a this is a quote from the the story. So and they're talking about the researchers. They say they looked for in this large population population. Um, I think it's called a loss of function mutation, right, Kevin? And basically, they found that this is the gene that when you when you make this tweak to it artificially, I, that maybe that's the wrong word. When you use CRISPR to inter, to to make this modification, it lowers LDL levels. Is that the basic idea of it? Can you fill in some of the scientific gaps there for people? Sure. Well, this is before you're doing any any gene edits, right? This is just what you find from naturally occurring gene variants. If you look at the genetic variation that occurs in certain people, you find folks who have mutations in this can either be loss of function, where this thing becomes less adept at removing LDL from the blood, and then uh, gain of function mutations, which make this better. And so there's a number of different ways that you can... Uh, kind of recreate these mutations. So let's just say you have a normal uh, normal PCSK9 uh, gene. You can use different drugs that can target this, uh, this protein. You can use um, antibodies. There's monoclonal antibodies that have been shown that when interacting with the protein can modulate its activity. There's a lot of other ways that you can pharmacologically affect that protein, and you can affect it genetically genetically with these specific genetic variants. So that's the basis of this. They know from a couple different lines of evidence that it should probably work. And what's really cool is that they actually have done the experiment. So can you use gene editing to change the cells of the liver to create variants that control the LDL levels? That's really where this goes. And what they've come up with are ways to deliver specific um, gene editing machinery, so the Cas9 enzyme with its appropriate uh, guidance, to target the PCSK9 gene. And when you do this, and they've done it in some small clinical trials just really to establish safety, but they uh, they got something like 40, uh, 40 patients right now are in this trial that will be completed in 2023. This is Verve Therapeutics. Um, but there are studies that were done first in non-human primates that show that something like a 60% reduction of LDL in 20 months. So if it works in a baboon, it probably work in me. <laughs> <laughs> that, and so that's... Um, that's probably, uh, it's very, very positive that this may have some very nice positive effects, at least in controlling LDL. The effect is, the question is, what other effects will it have? And can you modify enough cells in an average liver to change the way they produce cholesterol? So those are the big questions. Okay, so this is another, another comment from the story. So they say, the big hope is that this treatment could eventually be performed as a preventative measure. So before someone's LDL is out of control and it's, you know, a, a, a potentially serious risk of heart disease. But they also say that when you do that, you're basically making a, a pretty significant gene edit in people that are more or less healthy. And so that raises some concerns. Can you talk about that and maybe how that can be addressed? Well, sure. This is a really important question because now you're making permanent gene changes in somebody's liver and maybe other places too. We don't know that for sure. These seem to be targeted uh, corrections. It uh, and, and so, you know, it, 
should this be done? Because you can, does it mean you should? If you can manage it with statins, if you can manage it with these other therapies, why do you possibly have to start going making genetic changes in somatic cells? So these are not cells that will be passed on to your kids. Uh, they're not germline mutations. They're changes in your body that are being made. And it's you can see that there may be associated risks with that, and they're not necessarily necessary to... Uh, to, to take. And when you have statins that work perfectly fine, why would you bother to do this? Because you can stop taking statins and now you change your, you change your profiles back. And that's the big concern. The big issue there though is uh, compliance with use of statins and that you don't see uh, folks taking their medications for a long time. They tend to um, gravitate off of the medicines over something like just a few percent are still taking them after five years. So if this is a significant modifiable attribute that leads to uh, heart disease, are there ways we can control? It appears that there are and um, that we can do it you know, easier than doing gene edits. But this process too will refine and it could be that down the road, if you got LDL that's high, you may just go to a gene editing clinic and, and get your liver edited. <laughs> so, <laughs> but th it's just another way that this may be used and it seems to work well so far. So, um, you know, fingers crossed, you know, I mean, it'll only get better with time. Yeah. I'm not trying to throw cold water on this. I hope it, I hope it works. That would be awesome. Cause this is a real serious health problem for a lot of people. The other thing I wonder about, and maybe we can just address this briefly, um, is how certain behavioral influences or environmental influences will affect, you know, the, this treatment, you know? So we've talked recently a lot about how epigenetics plays an important role in our behavior and, and health outcomes and so forth. And I know, for example, like when it comes to obesity, there's, a gene called the FTO gene, which is associated with uh, weight gain. But there's also been studies done that show that when you go on a diet and you start exercising, you can modulate the effects of the FTO gene. So I'm wondering if something similar could happen here, you know, so say you get this edit done and it does what it's supposed to, but then you go home and you eat, you know, hot fudge sundaes and Twinkies and you don't exercise. Like, is that going to, is that going to offset this benefit or you, you know what I mean? You know what I'm getting at here? Yeah, but that, that's that's a psychological component of now that I'm compensating for this one way, I'm going to do the opposite. And people do that all the time. That's a normal part of human behavior. So this is where counseling comes up with any kind of therapeutic action like this, that just because we've got your LDL down doesn't mean you should drive it back up. And, you know, it's, it's the same thing with statins. You know, if you, people are taking statins for LDL and they suddenly can release from their dietary restrictions. Um, that seems to be the trend. But it, it, the idea here, at least, you know, sticking again, and maybe this is the theme for today, is I'm looking at this through the lens of if we can do this with science, it's a pretty cool trick that we can do. And it's the beginning of a technology that didn't exist you know, 10 years ago, and maybe we'll be able to start seeing this manifest as some positive ways to control uh, different levels of potentially lethal molecules uh, in at least the subtypes, uh, several subtypes of people. So just a few thoughts. Yeah. And there's a lot of treatments like this, you know, there, there's pharmaceutical drugs now that will help you lose weight, like a significant amount of weight. And there are risks for sure. But if you have someone who's on the ledge, you know, like you're, you know, 
you're, uh, I don't know, one piece of fried chicken away from a heart attack or something, you know, like people who are in, are in grave danger, this is probably very important. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't try to deny this to anybody. I'm just thinking, as you said, when it comes to human nature, it's like, well, I got this cool drug, you know, Taco Bell does sound good after all. And, and <laughs> it, you know, that's just the way it goes. So anyways, I hope this works and I hope people use it responsibly if it does work. But, uh, Let's talk about uh, mRNA vaccines, Kevin, a non-controversial topic, if there ever was one. Uh, yeah, you're telling me. <laughs> we, could, we could go into this all day today. I've been, it's been a lot of debate lately online as to whether or not mRNA vaccines are gene therapy, and they're not. But somehow one person said they are, and everybody is digging in their heels on that. So using that as an educational opportunity in the Twitter. <laughs> so this is an article by Michelle Roberts of BBC News, and she reminds us that um, you know there, influenza is still a pretty dangerous disease, or a pretty uh, uh, dangerous infectious disease. This was really the killer in the 1918 flu. So people talk about pandemics, they talk about you know, coronaviruses, the influenza A virus was the one in 1918. And a couple other times since, you know, the swine flu, bird flu, all this stuff is coming through uh, influenza A. And so why do we need to always protect ourselves from it? And that's the big question. Uh, why are we getting a different shot every year? And this is because flu has a fun way to evade immune response. They have something that is called domain shuffling, where different parts of the virus shuffle to present a different antigenic profile to the body and to the immune system. And uh, these are two proteins, H and N. So you hear H1N1, uh, H1N5, hemagglutinin and neuraminidase. They're proteins that are glycoproteins on the surface of virus that the virus uses it to fuse to the cell and come on in. And as you shuffle the domains of these and present different combinations, it changes the way the virus looks to the immune system. And so you, that's why every year you have to go get another shot because they can guess what is coming by looking in the southern hemisphere and in animal repositories and say, okay, it looks like this season is going to be these subtypes of flu. And if you have a guess as to what the subtypes are six months out, you can culture those viruses in chicken eggs and then uh, have the vaccine ready to go. You can you then chemically treat the uh, egg extracts to inactivate the virus and use that as vaccination. Problem is, you have to know a long time in advance. You have to inoculate jillions of chicken eggs. And then you can, at the most, only do four different subtypes of the H and N. So you're limited as to the kind of vaccines you can make. and and uh, and it takes a long time. So in preparation for your annual flu vaccine, scientists are doing this months and months ahead of time, and they could miss it. And that's why the every year flu vaccine is probably somewhere like 50 to 60% effective. So what if you could do a multivalent vaccine that conferred at least partial immunity to a broad set of viral subtypes? And really, that's what the article in Science that underlies this finding says. And what they do is they use the same strategy as the mRNA vaccine for COVID, only you take a lipid nanoparticle and you include the mRNA, so the genetic message for 20 different subtypes of flu. So you get one shot and develop 
the antibodies against 20 different subtypes. And the thinking is that at least with this shot, you'll have less problems with symptom severity, duration of illness, and ultimately lethality. So that's the idea behind this 20 different subtype mRNA vaccine. So this is super cool. And I think one of the, one of the most important ones, and you briefly touched on this, is that they can, they can be developed very, very quickly and you can have protection against more strains of the virus, right? So one of the problems is that they pick the strains that are going to go into the, they're called candidate vaccine viruses, I believe. They pick the ones they're going to use like six or nine months in advance. And it's like, I don't know, you know, sometimes it's like throwing a dart at a dartboard. You're like, yeah, sure. Let's do that one. That that's going that, you know, that's a problem in Australia. Let's use that one. Um, but with this, you can develop them very, very relatively quickly compared to what we do right now. And so that could mean picking uh, a virus that's in circulation and you could potentially offer better protection that way. Is that, am I on the right track there in terms of the benefit that this provides? Yeah, 100%. And you don't have to do the whole egg thing and you don't need to know six months ahead of time. Yeah. It allows agility in the development of new vaccines to meet new threats. And I was at a national security meeting last week that was really cool. Um, and one of the main themes that they talked about was, uh, did you know that they're actually surveilling the viruses in airports and in the nation's capital? And they pay attention to what viruses are there because it's not just a question of protecting national health, but um, anticipating, you know, a viral outbreak and a pandemic outbreak, but also national security, that bioterrorism that, that may try to redevelop something like smallpox or some sort of very lethal virus, they can pick it up early. And this is what's so cool about this is that if you have this mRNA technology, it allows you to come up with a counter to any kind of a a naturally occurring threat or lab leak <laughs> or <laughs> potentially bioterrorism uh, in weeks rather than months. And, and it, and it works like a charm in ferrets, by the way. So they've done this in mice and ferrets. <laughs> works great. So, um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, it works really well in mice and ferrets. So you won't see mice and ferrets wearing masks, masking up in airports. Um, it'll be a while for humans because this is a novel regulatory circuit. We don't know exactly how to regulate this yet uh, for, at the national level. Uh, how are these mRNA vaccines uh, you know, officially going to be tested and deregulated? Um, we've had a good run with the COVID-19 vaccines, but um, it's good to know that people are looking out for us. And, and if pandemic strikes, we can move very quickly to counter any kind of a uh, vaccine threat and be it natural or man-made really cool it is very very exciting the, the one question i have and maybe we should just touch on this is um public acceptance especially coming out of the pandemic especially with all the drama over the covid shots how, how do you sell this to people i mean my first instinct is just to say cnn fox news and msnbc are not allowed to talk about this they're just not it's not <laughs> you're not allowed to report on this you know it, it we, but i don't know obviously that's not viable to shut the media up as much as i can fantasize um so how do you convince people to to take this kevin without in, inciting a massive backlash which i maybe you can't even do that i don't know well, it's going to take some very careful communication strategy, and it's something I think about all the time. I think if they gave me this job 
to figure out how to recondition the public to be more understanding and accepting of help public health strategies that are truly safe and, and efficacious, we could, uh, we could do it. Uh, a big part of this is going to be, and I hate to say it, is going to be that there's going to be a disaster first before people are comfortable with the cure. And we, we got, I heard this at this national security meeting over and over again, is we got lucky with COVID and without disrespect to people who have lost loved ones to the virus, uh, it was relatively mild in that its lethality was low. But uh, what it did do was turn off people to the idea of the government being able to deploy an effective strategy with all the conspiratorial garbage, with my governor convening a, a panel to reinvestigate, you know, panel of politicians to investigate the uh, vaccine and, and the virus itself. Um, the amount of trust in the public has really been eroded. So can you imagine if uh, Fauci or his next uh person down on the road comes on TV and says, we've detected a novel virus in Los Angeles in the airport. And we know people have gone from that airport into uh, 230 different locations in the U S and you need to stay inside mask up. If you go out and we're developing a vaccine against this 50% of Americans would say, well, we're not going to do any of that. <laughs> and, it does, and the next one will spread like wildfire. And, and if it's lethal, like MERS, which is another pandemic that was in the last 20 years, if it's lethal like MERS, last 10 years, you'll see uh, a lot more widespread death and problems from it. And unfortunately, I, I think that's the route we're going to end up going before we can trust the scientific infrastructure to do the right thing. And then that's where really where we have to be focused as science communicators and as a, a the government communication folks really need to get with it and, and let's have a soft landing rather than a hard one. Um, and let's start conditioning folks for the reality that this may continue um, very soon and, and that we need to be ready for it. Yeah. I'm not optimistic about that. I, <laughs> I, I, I wish, you know, but I just think that there's a combination of things. I mean, the government so badly botched the response Everybody, you know, not it's not it's not a you know a red versus blue thing. I just everyone just so badly screwed this up that yeah, I'm concerned. So hopefully, God willing, you know, we'll have I don't know a decade or two before this the next nasty virus or you know infectious disease pops up its ugly head. So maybe you know we'll have time to forget just how miserable the, <laughs> the response was this time around. But I don't know. Let's. Uh, I, I guess we're gonna wrap it there, Kevin. And uh, I'm in a good mood despite that last story. So who are you following on Twitter? I'm not following anybody because I can't get on Twitter. <laughs> my count, man, count got whacked by uh, what third party stress. Yeah, third party software that was supposed to do some analysis that ended up screwing up my Twitter account. So I'm trying to get back on. But follow Peter Hotez at Peter Hotez, P E T E R H O T Z. And I've recommended him before. He's going through more and more crap about uh, the, the fact that he developed a vaccine that's uh, inoculated 100 million people in India. And uh, he gets nothing for it. Uh, he just developed it. And they made sure they could get rid of it without patents and free production. It's being produced in Indonesia and other places. Um, and it's, and, and it's uh, saving a lot of people. And uh, for that, he is enduring tremendous backlash. So welcome to Bizarro World. Who are you following, Cameron? 
I'm following uh, Mr. Guy Bentley for two reasons. First, I just like people with the name Guy. I think that's awesome because you can walk up to him and go, hey, Guy, what's going on? And uh, also, Guy Bentley is the director of consumer freedom at the Reason Foundation. And I recently saw him jump onto a CDC webinar that he was not invited to and that was not supposed to be for public consumption. (laughs) And he started drilling... Uh, these staffers for the CDC with very, very insightful questions. And this was related to um, tobacco control policy, which of course the CDC is heavily involved in, but he read one of their reports um, about uh, vaping and electronic cigarettes, which is a very controversial topic these days. But he was just going in, he's saying, you know, on page such and such, you said this and that, and can you explain what you meant by that? And they were like, well, uh," and I think that's exactly what you need these days. You need people who are willing to do that kind of heavy lifting and ask difficult questions, whether it be of government agencies or corporations or politicians. Um, You know, we always talk about how we're all siloed in our own little, uh, you know, our own little circles and we only listen to people that are just like us. And then that's how we define our worldviews. I think this is good, right? You go into an environment like that and you ask tough questions because that's how you learn and that's how things improve. So he is at GBentley1 on Twitter. And that's going to do it for us. Kevin, two more episodes, then we're at the big two hundo. I'm really excited. How are you feeling about that? That's going to be the first of the new year, right? So 2023 starts with the 200th episode. Boom. And we're going to, uh, what's the big announcement? I, I don't know. I, <laughs> I, <laughs> like, well, we should consider, you know, the video component, maybe changing from this Twitter recommendation thing to something else. But let's come up with some new exciting twist for the new year. There you go. There you go. Maybe you'll get to see our beautiful mugs. Maybe I'll give a fetus update. (laughs) Like every week. It just seems so weird to call your developing child fetus. You know, like I know technically that's medically correct. You're like, oh, my fetus is doing well. Fetus is good. Fetus is irritating the baby mama. I have no doubt, you know, because pregnancy stuff. But um, everything's good on that front before we jump off. Oh, yeah. It's a lot of fun. (laughs) <laughs> uh, for me it's not the way i would put it but okay no, no, it's super cool like i'm looking forward to it like you wouldn't believe and i think about it all the time and and I'm really looking forward to it and um you know the wife is enjoying it a lot you know she always wanted to be a mom but the fact that you know we're advanced age parents is kind of an interesting thing but it's really cool and uh the, the only thing that really if there's a downside, it's the fact that she's a real hard worker who did a lot of heavy stuff. And now that she's with child, I get to do all the heavy stuff. So I go home from work and get to, you know, move 21 bags, 50 pound bags over to this pallet, you know, and it's, uh, it's good. I mean, it's exercise, but man, it takes, it takes a little bit of discretionary time I have just takes it away. So, um, but, um, she'll be back in six months. Maybe. (laughs) (laughs) It's great, man. You're going to be a great dad. And I'm sure you guys are going to be great parents together. It's just, I love being a dad. Having kids is great. Have kids. Yeah, I think it's going to be fun. I think that we have such a perfect place for a kid to land. You know, like if you had to pick a place to be conceived, (laughs) 
it, it's not such a bad spot because we have, you know, uh, just growing up on a place with animals and gardens and trees and all this stuff. And I'm super excited about that. And I'm going to plant some trees that are going to be, I'm going to take a picture next with her next to it every year and watch the tree grow as she grows. And uh, I think that'll be a lot of fun. And uh, then when sometime when she's like 30 and she sells the property <laughs> and, and they bulldoze the damn thing, she can move to Maui and have a nice life. So, yeah. Well, you know, I'm realistic. You know, We're building it. a Chuck E. Cheese on your farm. <laughs> yeah. No, definitely. No, the, the, the town is coming my direction. I don't, I don't give it 30 years, but uh, so we're going to, we're going to, we're going to love it while we got it. And we'll have a, it's a great place for, our little girl to land. It's pretty exciting. Very good. That's one thing we've got to do. Think of a nickname to go with the Queens for, for your, your daughter when she arrives. But uh, I already we, call her, I already call her booger. Booger that the Queens and booger. That sounds like a, like a, I don't know, sitcom morning zoo. <laughs> the Queens and booger with you right over here. man. <laughs> okay. That's going to do it for us. You guys we will be back one ninety nine uh, soon. Maybe not, uh, maybe not next week. But soon, 199 might be a little bit of a gap in between our normal scheduling. But follow us on Twitter as well at Kevin Folta at ACSH org for my writing. Follow Genetic Literacy Project. They're just at Genetic Literacy. And we will see you all next time. Bye.